Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Sadowick. My guest today is Craig McCartney, who is returning to the show for some cocktails and power politics. Craig writes a weekly column entitled, Well, Let Me Say This About That, for He Said Magazine, and is joining me today to share some of his Southern slash Texas colloquial insights on our current state of affairs down here in the Lone Star State. The social media political pundits on both sides of the aisle are having an extraordinary time pontificating their reactions to the fact that Texas, being the number one energy-producing state in the USA, couldn't keep its lights on when Mother Nature decided to vacation in Texas. Oh, there's so much to cover. I'm guessing we will not run out of things to say for sure this week. Welcome back to Breaking Protocol, Craig McCartney. Well, thank you, Bob. It's always my pleasure to be with you and your guests. So much fun. And I did use, quote, power politics. We were without any power here in Texas for the last week. At the peak of the outage, 4.5 million Texans were without power while Dallas recorded a negative two degrees below zero on February 16th when the city of Houston dipped down to 11 degrees Fahrenheit. It was something to truly experience that most Texans had never experienced before. It was unbelievable for Texas. Unbelievable. How many folks did you talk to this past week that had to make alternative arrangements in their existence because of lack of heat or electricity. or And of course, we have a whole water issue that we really won't have time to get into today. You know, Bob, I don't think I know of literally anyone who didn't at least lose power or lost water, burst pipes, home damage, some level of not just inconvenience, but inability to just carry on with the daily functions of life. And I'm talking about things like flushing your toilet and not going to bed wondering if you're going to freeze to death, which sadly some Texans actually did. I had several friends I know that had to accept offers from other friends for temporary housing. It was just a terrible, avoidable and totally predictable occurrence that, as you might have heard on I Love Lucy, somebody has some explaining to do. Somebody has some explaining to do for sure. And you are 100% correct in the fact that people have died. There are going to be more related deaths in the coming days, no doubt, we're going to hear about. It was avoidable. It was predictable. It was all of those things. And what's interesting is, and let's get into a little history behind all of this and those specific situations that you just mentioned. You know, the Texas power grid is independent. And that means that it's not connected to any other power grid in the United States. So it operates without any cooperative measures. The theory behind all that back in the day Uh, when this came about, was that the Texas politicians who came up with this brilliant idea back in 1999 
decided that they would be better off avoiding any kind of federal regulation by isolating Texas power grid as an independent existence. Now, I will say, taking into consideration that Texas is the leading energy producing state in the country, I could see where they might have come to this conclusion that this was an experiment worth venturing into. When that decision was made, and, you know, Texas is fiercely independent, it was almost like this whole move ourselves off of the the grid was almost like dry run secession that Texas always likes to fantasize about, some people in Texas. It could potentially have been a, a, uh, a successful experiment if they had taken the, the basic precautions, if the government entities had required those private interests to do what was necessary to protect the electrical grid from just the sort of thing that happened this week. And they didn't. And, now, and, and, and like I said earlier, this was completely predictable. I've lived in Texas all of my life. I've lived in Dallas for over 40 years. At least every 10 years, there is some kind of extreme winter weather emergency. And the only thing different about what happened last week compared to what happened in 1979 or 1989 or, you know, 2011 or 2014 or whatever year you want to plug in, it just affected a whole lot more of Texas. But the extremity that we experienced last week is not unique, unusual, or anything to Texas. And we just weren't prepared. Well, Craig, you know, we are going to have to name some names here. And well, yes, we should. We're going to have to name some names. And I'm going to start with the decision, how this all began. And this decision all began with a decision by George W. Bush, the former president, back in 1999 when he was governor. He signed the legislation that took Texas off the grid. And now I'm not going to place the entire blame on his shoulders because that would be undue. However, you probably can apply a lot of blame to Rick Perry. Now, this wouldn't be the first time that one might point to Rick Perry's skills and observe a failure. But this was a huge huge failure. The competitive system, it is true, created cheaper electricity for Texans and Texas businesses. But the deregulated system that came from it did not have safeguards to protect the integrity of the power. And though rules existed, enforcement was clearly lacking. When you have this Byzantine structure whereby you have ERCOT and you have the PUC and the railroad commissions involved and and the state legislature and the governor obviously have their pieces of responsibility because that's where the actual oversight and the regulation needs to come from. And then a multitude of producers, whether they are gathering up gas or coal or turbine power or whatever, and then it goes through a multitude of actual distributors and suppliers. When you have that many people involved in providing something as basic 
as electricity and all of these different parts and pieces have profit motivation, then it becomes really difficult, I think, for the average person to look at that that maze of responsibilities and even be, begin to figure out who and what is responsible when you have this kind of failure. And I don't think that's by accident. I think that's by design. And when you, when we saw from the very beginning of, of this disaster in Texas that people started pointing fingers and they, you know, they were like, well, it's the wind turbines. Well, no, it's not. Our fearless leader, Governor Abbott, trying to make sure that some other entity, I think he kind of settled on ERCOT, which for those who are not familiar and why would you be? I had never heard of ERCOT until about a week ago. But it's the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which reliability um, is supposed to be a part of is part of the name, but there is not. Um, <laughs> it's uh, a little, it's a little humorous. Yeah, that yeah the word reliability like, is in yeah. the title of the organization yeah. that oversees the transmission and distribution of electrical power. It would make for a very good acronym to be the Electric Every Once in a While Council of Texas. (laughs) Um, But you see all of that happening. And to a point that you just made, in some cases, deregulation does work its way into the actual pocketbooks of the people, of the actual users. Well, absolutely, Um, Craig. And one thing I'll say is that, look, not being affiliated with a neighboring power grid, eliminates the ability for Texas to import power should the need arise. However, being the largest energy-producing state in the country, I suppose that's a risk worth taking until it's not. Exactly. The last time in 2011 when this all came back because there was an ice storm. Super Bowl was involved. People might even remember that. This issue came up again, and the, and it was quietly swept under the rug once again, and and then wait for ten years for the next emergency. But nobody has come back to me with any numbers that I've seen that has said, "Well, here's the deal: the average." energy consumer in Texas in their household, they have saved an average of X number of dollars a month, a year, or whatever over the course of those 10 years because we made the decision not to require the winterizing of the production pieces to get the electricity to you and your house. Now, if you could tell me that number, then I can makes a decision either in your favor or against you as to whether or not the risk that you took on my behalf was worth the inconvenience that I experienced on the back end. But they haven't they haven't done that, Bob. They haven't said, you know, the average household in Texas saved X number of dollars, which implies to me that you can't quantify it because we didn't get the savings. The savings was strictly on the corporate end, and if we didn't get the savings, you know where they went. They went directly to the profits of the, of the businesses involved. Well, and even if you're saving a few bucks per month, and I suppose even without official data, 
I would be willing to concede that the average household in Texas maybe saved a few bucks a month. But then what happens every five, 10, seven years, and we're just going to call it 10 years in this situation, all of a sudden, not only are you inconvenienced, mm-hmm. as, as we have, have indicated, but this went way beyond inconvenience. People, oh, yeah. people lost their lives, and people like myself have incurred thousands of dollars in uninsured expenses oh, yeah. as a direct result of having lost power. Now, this is where your savings is no longer savings. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because, and the other piece of that, I did see a number today. I can't source it so people can check with them. <laughs> But my understanding is that the insured, the, the insured property losses in Texas at that point in time was, was hitting 18 billion. Now, that's a huge amount of loss, but we also know who's going to pay for that. Well, ultimately, we know who's going to pay for that. But what about the uninsured property losses? Well, there's that too. So what? So it's it's just everywhere along the way you've got these risks that were being taken that I think that the average Texan did not know were being taken. We didn't really understand this. We didn't know that this could happen. Most of us, and I've been through that. We had a power uh, outage a few years back during a winter storm. It was due to power lines coming down from the ice. And we were without power for like three or four days. We understand that. People understand that if you are unfortunate enough to live in a neighborhood that has power lines on poles, because the the electricity is supplied by a system that was created in the 1930s, as we that's where we live. Well, you know that's a risk that you take. I don't think any of us expected that they were not going to be able to keep the electricity generators running. That it wouldn't be that there it wouldn't be that there was because they couldn't get it to us, but because there was literally limited electricity compared to the demand. That in Texas, that just does not make sense. Well, and ultimately, the folks that lose in situations like these are those that can least afford to lose. The folks who are dealing with uninsured losses are the folks that endured the most severe penalties, if you will, of the decisions that they made. And here's what's sad about all this. I want to get into this a little bit. They knew this was happening. They knew this was happening a week before this actually happened. They knew it was going to happen. And even in the mornings of Monday, February 15th, when ERCOT realized it was too late for a backup plan, at that time, CEO Bill Magnus indicated that the entire power grid of Texas was just minutes and or seconds away from a complete and total catastrophic failure. And at that stage is when he began implementing, and I'm going to use quotes again, a rolling blackout. Now, I suspect many who experienced those rolling blackouts might use another term for that other than rolling. But apparently, Mr. Magnus is the self-proclaimed 
hero in this scenario, for he's claiming that his decisions protected the entire state. Otherwise, we might still be without electricity today. And let there be no mistake. According to Mr. Magnus's public records, he is no doubt paid like a hero. At a salary in excess of $800,000 per year, while dedicating, I might add, only a handful of hours per week to the job. And that's according to KSAT-TV down in San Antonio. It's just mind-boggling in Texas where people are supposed to understand this stuff at a higher level than other people, right? Because we're Texas and we are the energy capital of the country, if not the whole world. We understand how this stuff is done. So we don't need your help, America. We can, we can do this on our own. The hubris of that. And then for us to be back, back in the face because we literally couldn't keep the lights on in Texas. Literally could not keep the lights on. And then, oh, because in, in addition to that, then the water went out and then the sewer pipes were backing up into people's houses and, and on and on and on and on. I mean, it's, it's one of those things like sometimes Arrogance needs to be hit with some comeuppance in Texas, and I love Texas, got some big old comeuppance last week, and it might have been just a, a shade overdue. Well, you know, what's interesting is that State Representative Jeff Leach, who represents the district just to the north of Dallas, and he recently appeared on my good friend Jason Whiteley's show, Inside Texas Politics on WFAA Dallas, discussed this historical event, and he was quoted in the New York Times as saying, I believe there is great value in Texas being on its own grid, and I believe we can do so safely and securely and confidently going forward. Now, he's a Republican from Plano who's called for an investigation into what went wrong and indicating that it's going to take new investment and some new strategy decisions to make sure we protect this from ever happening again, is still promoting that Texas grid remains isolated from the rest of the country. I mean, what is it going to take for these state legislators down in Austin to wake up and realize that Your dream of Texas being its own country is literally a dream. Well, and if if last week was any indication, absolute friggin' nightmare. I mean, they say that the buck stops with the state legislature. Ultimately, they got us into this mess. Ultimately, they're going to have to get us out of this mess. So I'll even say to Mr. Leach, in the unlikely event you are listening... I'm happy to provide you a platform on this podcast to further explain how you plan to go about doing just that. Well, and it takes a little bit more than soft words like new investment and strategic decisions. We don't need a great old big investigation into what went wrong. So many people were affected by this, and there's been so much information put out through uh, public sources. It's pretty obvious what went wrong. 
and it's pretty obvious the the whole network of uh, agencies and boards and companies that share some piece of the responsibility, some more than others, but ultimately, as you kind of indicated, the buck stops with the state legislature and the leadership of the Texas governor. So don't come at me with a bunch of soft words about investments and strategies. I mean, I want to hear, we're going to require this company pick a name, and we're going to require this company pick a name to do these things Period. Oh, and by the way, why should we as taxpayers have to bail out these private industry companies who back in 2011 failed us and knew this was going to happen one day again? And instead of saving for a rainy day, like we all get preached to doing by, you know, our state leaders, they rolled in their profits and enjoyed the benefits and left us holding the bag. Well, yes, because it, it because it's 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 an amazing business to be in. You know, most folks that I know that are that have businesses, their businesses are are subject whether they're in the oil and gas industry or whether they own a restaurant or whether whatever it is that they may own, large or small or somewhere in between. They're subject to the fluctuations of the marketplace and demand and all kinds of stuff. But when you're providing an essential service, the system seems to be set up to make sure you can't go out of business. And on top of that, your profit margin is going to be protected because as soon as this, this thing hit, you know, they were in, they were down there, I think, in front of the, uh, Public Utilities Commission had in hand saying, well, this wasn't really, we're not really planned for this. We're going to need to raise the rates to make sure we can stay in business, which basically means and making money. So it's real sweet to be in that kind of business. Hell, I go into that kind of business. Cause you Amen. Can't, how can you not lose? Amen. So especially when you have there again, you have a, a governmental entity that basically says, Sure, you can raise the rates on the consumers, and they're just going to have to—they're just going to have to suck it up, Buttercup. As opposed to saying, "No, you're not going to raise the rates. You're going to take this one on the chin because this is your fault." There you, you go. Because at some level, because here's the other thing, you know, back in the day, this is harkening back to a past life. I sound like Shirley MacLaine, <laughs> but you know, in a past, in a past life, I actually did have. Um, you know, a real corporate management job and stuff. And one of the things that we invested a good deal of time and therefore money into was in into disaster recovery, what to do in the event there was some kind of a physical catastrophe for the offices and the records and all of this stuff and computer systems. A lot of, of, of time spent doing that. We didn't do that because we were required to do it by the state. There was no regulation and and. And back in the 80s and 90s, I don't know whether it is now because I've been out of the corporate game for a long time, but back then, that was a big part. That was a, a piece of management that had to be addressed so that if, you know, if there was a fire or there was a tornado in Texas, what would you do to, for continuation of business? You did that. That was considered a cost of doing business. It is astonishing to me that all of the parts and pieces that are in place to provide electricity when I stick a lamp 
in, into the you know into the wall socket to make sure that it turns on. Those people don't consider the continuation of service as part of their basic requirements as a business. They have they have to be forced by regulation to do their job. It, it, it's you know it's just unbelievable to me. Well, it's just uh, downright shameful. At the end of the day, it's but shameful. It's, it's just shameful. shameful. And I'll tell you, you know, Governor Abbott. And I want to I want to switch gears and, and and talk about Governor Abbott for a moment. But the one fail safe that he did have, and that he has executed on, is he extended his hand to Washington D.C. and said, "I need help." And fortunately, President Joe Biden, by executive order, has extended that help in return and has given Governor Abbott an opportunity here now to make some decisions going forward that are going to be beneficial to Texans. But what I am going to express as my concern about where Governor Abbott goes is He's resistant to regulation. Yes, he wants to fire everybody, but without the implementation of regulation around this public entity, you can hire all the new people you want. And what's going to change? Exactly. Exactly. But but I suspect that Abbott is more concerned about the right people to fire uh, I would recommend starting with Mr. $800,000 a year, Bill Magnus. But Abbott is concerned about finding, is more concerned, I suspect, about finding someone to scapegoat with this disaster so that he himself doesn't get fired next year because, bless his heart, he's not been doing real well even with Republicans in Texas. So he's got his own political issues, his own his own political priorities of how to come through this thing. And I'm confident when I say that the statewide elected officials, which by the way, in Texas, in case any of your uh, listeners don't know that they're all Republicans. We we haven't elected anybody statewide as a Democrat in, you know, twenty five years or something. Well the, since Ann Richards, I suppose. I think so. I think so. There was like, well, we had Bill Bullock, uh, uh, Bill, uh, Bob Bullock for a while. But you know what I'm, I'm saying? I, I mean, it, it, it's like, because the reality is when you kind of get past and kind of get out of the, your feelings on it, which is kind of difficult to do right now, but the political implications are, are clear. By the time that we come to the next general election, November of next year, and there will be a plethora of other things that will likely have dimmed the average Texas voter's memory is this. Sure, the Democrats are going to remember and that effectively or ineffectively trying to use this as an issue in the general election, but I don't have any faith that anything will actually change as a result of this, either in terms of the actual grid and its efficiency and its durability, nor that there would be actual political consequences to to those um, state officials from governor to the legislature 
who actually should be held accountable for this failure. Well, I I completely agree with you, Craig. I mean, in the political arena, the memories of constituencies are short-lived. That is just a fact. And this being two years from the next election, basically speaking, is a long time for a lot of other minutia to come and go down the river for people to try to recall this and hold somebody accountable. Let's move on to a little bit of some lighter subject matter, just because, I mean, this is this truly is a horse that has been beat to death. And, you know, I love to talk about travel. So this is going to be a really good one. Ted Cruz made a decision to vacation during this whole, what I refer to as the power pandemic, this fiasco. He decides to go off to warmer climate. I mean, it is something that even Saturday Night Live was making light of. Is there any real justification for beating up Ted Cruz over his travel choices? Well, I would I would say I don't know whether there's any real justification for beating up Ted Cruz. I want to know is there any real justification for there being a Ted Cruz? <laughs> if I could take a moment to speak about uh, Raphael, or as I like to call him now, Fled Cruz. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, Are we I hashtagging never, that fled cruise? Yeah, please, fled cruise. I didn't make that up. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not that clever. I did see somebody else say it first, so you know, full disclosure. But you know, the thing about Ted Cruz, I can just talk rant about him for a minute. So I have a good friend that was with him at Princeton when he was an undergraduate there, and and my friend's recollection of of, of him at that time was that. You know, he was always needing to make it clear to everyone that he was smart, which, of course, my friend said, we were at Princeton. Everybody was smart. You know, I have another friend that had an encounter with him when there was a possibility that that my friend was going to work, going to work at the same uh, law firm where Cruz was working. And they tried, the, the people at the law firm tried to push Ted into the background because he was somewhat odious. And I don't say that because of any feelings that I have about him. I've never seen the man in person. But, I mean, we do know that Lindsey Graham famously said, you know, if someone shot Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate and they had the trial in the Senate, the person would not be found guilty. And Al Franken, what was it he said about, I like Ted Cruz better than anybody else in the Senate and I hate him. You know, it's that kind of thing. But this is a man that attempted to actually blame his children for his poor decision. Yes, yes. And then come to find out, you know, now the rumor and the reporting and the anecdotal facts that are circulating the social media circuit these days is that his wife was really the master planner of the whole thing. And apparently, this is what I just find amazing, is that, you know, they were on this, apparently on this group text talking about going to uh, Cancun, and there was a real deal for $309 a night for rent the Ritz-Carlton, which I'm, to be perfectly honest, I wish they would stop saying he's going to a resort. He was going to the Ritz-Carlton. 
Okay. Uh, let's get a little class warfare going here. Okay. The average person who votes for Ted Cruz and has voted for him as United States Senator in Texas, that average voter has never crossed the boundaries to, to enter a Ritz-Carlton in their life. And that's not, that's not a criticism of them or, or anything. I'm just simply saying that's a, that's a little, that's a little rarefied there. I would suspect you're correct. But the fact that Heidi's friends and the fact that she's her name is Heidi is just don't get me started. Um, <laughs> and, and the response of her friends apparently was to call the New York Times. I'm like, even your friends don't like even the people you think well enough of that you're like, hey, you want to go down to Cancun for a few days? The weather is lousy here in Houston, and they're like, oh. I think I'm going to call the New York Times because this is going to be bad for you. Who, who, how bad a judge of character are you? Well, obviously, these so-called friends, Craig, did not join the cruises in Cancun. Instead, like you said, called the New York Times and exposed all of their tweets. The other arrogance that I just don't get, and and let's just call it now this, we can just call this for what it is. Ted literally attempted to directly lie to Texans about his intention, blaming it on the fact that as a good father, I should take my children to Cancun, drop them off with the intention of returning the next day. Did he really think, does he really believe that someone at the airline was not going to leak his original itinerary? Did he think that wasn't going to happen? He wasn't planning on coming back the next day. This is where I just, how much bigger can he dig this hole? And does he not realize that there again, hasn't life experience shown you that somebody's going to rat you out uh, at, at, at somewhere along the way? But the the fact that he left the dog at home, I want to know what the hell is it with Republicans and their dogs? Remember when, <laughs> remember when Mitt Romney got outed because they had like strapped the dog onto the top of the car or something? Remember that? And Ted and Heidi, they left their dog at home. And I was like going on the internet looking for Houston. PPS, Houston Poodle Protective Services. I was going to be like, y'all need to go get this dog and bring her to me. Her name is Snowflake, which, okay, Snowflake, isn't that what hardcore Trumpers and Republicans call liberals? You named your dog Snowflake? Yeah, it, that's kind of, yeah, I don't think. That's kind of creepy. I want it's, to, a, it's, I, a, it's, it's tacky. And I want, I want them, if they will do this, if somebody, if there's a listener out there, if y'all can go under the guise of Poodle Protective Services and get Snowflake, (laughs) bring her to me, we will give her a home, she will never be alone again, and on top of everything else, I'm going to change her name to uh, something more appropriate, and and my new name for Snowflake is going to be um, About Over Cruise. (laughs) <laughs> which will be, which will of course be abbreviated to AOC, and that is how I want to solve the problem 
of that poor baby left alone while those people went to Cancun. You know, I have to tell you the one thing I heard this last week on the Sunday shows was uh, in the roundtable uh, segment of Inside Texas Politics, which I watch religiously every Sunday, Bud Kennedy from Fort Worth, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and the producer of Inside Texas Politics, Bernadine Steptoe, both agree that any potential opportunity for Ted Cruz to ever be president of this country is now dead and gone. There's no chance that's never going to happen. That ship sailed. I never thought that he would have the opportunity to get the Republican nomination, but I do think that this pretty much should seal the nail in the coffin because now I don't even see how he could manage to get a, a really significant donor base together. But even the dark money, why would you want to bet on Ted, Raphael? Have we reached the point where we are so unaccustomed to leadership that we don't even understand as a people that they have a responsibility to us and it has more to do with than just voting on proposed legislation. It has to do with constituent services. It has to do with showing an example. It has to do with being there in the thick of things when there is a crisis or an emergency. Have we actually reached the point where we can't hold our leaders responsible because they've been so pissed poor we don't even know what a leader looks like anymore? Has it just kind of gone so far by the wayside that a United States senator feels that he can leave the country when there's an emergency in the state he represents because it's cold in his house? Craig, it's just been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Well, thank you. It's always my pleasure to be here. And thank you for joining Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowick. You can read Craig's column. Well, let me say this about that. Every Friday at hesaidmag.com. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. And please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes. If you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol. Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy. It is available at your favorite online retailer or for download to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Have a beautiful day and many blessings.